You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Jenny Lindbergh. I'm Lauren Tang, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. I've heard the dream often, especially in the financial independence community. Maybe we could buy a bunch of houses together, share resources, build a neighborhood. The key idea is to bring together a group of people with shared values and a similar outlook on life. But it never seemed to make it past the dream stage for us. But there are communities popping up around this country that do just that. They're called co-housing communities. Could one be right for you? And what do the economics look like? Could this be another way to meet our financial goals? Jenny Lindbergh is a founder of Sunnyside Village Co-housing, which is a co-housing community centered on a large organic garden. They put community first with a focus on solidarity, sustainability, and democracy. Lauren Tang is a physician, a financial independence enthusiast, and the co-host of the In Love and Money podcast. She recently joined the Sunnyside Village community. Jenny and Lauren, welcome to Earn and Invest. Lauren, let's start with you. Tell us about the first time you heard about co-housing. What was the appeal? I feel like the first time I heard about co-housing was probably the first time I heard about financial independence to begin with. So it was at one of the Camp Fi. Hopefully most of your listeners know what a Camp Fi is, but it's usually a weekend where a whole bunch of us enthusiasts fire people, come and talk and eat and hang out. And I remember having a speaker coming in and he was talking about this concept where he was building a community from the ground up with local resources, with like-minded people, and he called it co-housing. And that's really stuck in my mind for like five years. And of course, like most people, I'm not in a position to go out and find a new community and, and and, you know, build a home or anything like that. I had a job or I have a job and home and, and a life already. But this past year, I was feeling like it was time that I really explore the fire, whether I wanted to retire early now. And it was natural to go back to this kernel of an idea that I had or, or heard about five years ago, co-housing. And that's how I found Jenny and her group out in uh, Seattle And I'm so excited that we're talking about this now because I feel like I've come full circle. I've heard about this idea five years ago in the FI community, and now I'm helping to build a co-housing community five five years later. Jenny, Lauren talks about hearing the idea of co-housing first five years ago. Tell us, what is co-housing? Is this a new idea? Not at all. Co-housing was kind of discovered in Denmark 30 or 40 years ago by Katie McCammett and Chuck Durrett, who were married at the time. And they're architects, and they they ran across co-housing and said, wow, this is really amazing. We we need to bring this to the United States. And so they're, they're generally credited with bringing it to the U.S. Jenny, what was your original inspiration? Well, it's quite different than Lauren's, actually, and it's kind of a sideways story. My husband and I were visiting an old friend of his from high school who lives in Berlin, and he's a political science uh, professor at Rutgers 
Frank Fisher, very well-known, lots of books, and and I, I totally respect this man. And we were um, sitting in a cafe in Berlin, drinking coffee and, and talking about the world in general. And he said, I have a fear for democracy. He said, I'm afraid that democracy is um, in danger. And I think that the places that democracy can can exist and can continue are in the eco-villages and in co-housing communities. And my husband and I looked at each other and said, what's an eco-village and what's (laughs) (laughs) co-housing? So so we started exploring that and researching it and figuring it out. That was about five years ago, just just like Lauren. And we decided that co-housing really fit more for who we are and, and our stage of life and started researching it more and more and learning about it, going to conferences, visiting a lot of co-housing communities and talking to people. One thing I find really interesting about the co-housing community is how how nice people are, how kind and helpful and generous. So many people have been very, very generous with helping me learn about what it is and, and helping me get this started, us get this started. Lauren, I find it interesting. Jenny is talking about coming to co-housing almost from a political perspective. Democracy mm-hmm. is changing. Maybe these are the pockets where it can flourish. I get the feeling you came at it more from a financial viewpoint. Does co-housing fill some of your financial needs? Is it a financial solution? It could be, but actually for me, I don't feel like it's the financial aspect was the driver. I felt like the personal aspect was more of a driver for me. I think for a lot of us in the five community, we are like dollar and cents people. This is what we start out fi- trying to figure out, you know, our budgets. How much do we need to have in the bank in order to retire? You know, how much can we spend? All of these things. And we help each other with that. So it, it doesn't take a long time for us to figure out when we can retire or, you know, uh, how much to save and all of these things. So I feel like for a while now, I've moved past the dollar and cents and I've moved towards sort of what am I going to do with the rest of my life once I leave my my work, once I fire, once, once I launch this rocket that I've been thinking about for so long, which is retire early. And the personal aspect of building community, building a lifestyle where I'm focusing on physical health, mental health is is the most important. And I think in order to do that, you have to have a strong community with you. You have to build relationships. You have to live somewhere where you feel like you belong and the people that are around you are helping you to achieve your goals. And I think co-housing, that's one of the main values, sort of like the building block and really building the community physically and socially from the ground up. Lauren, do you feel like the values of the co-housing community and the financial independence retire early run parallel? Yeah, I think they're very adjacent. You know, what we're talking about in co-housing is living sustainably, being environment conservations. So we're, we're talking about a lot of things that are very adjacent to the values of financial independence. You know, if you're talking about how do we conserve energy by having solar power? How do we conserve our water by draining our water in a way that can feed our gardens and conserve our natural resources? How do we pull our re- personal resources into the community so that we share our physical belongings, but also, you know, all of the personal resources that we each bring to the community? All of these things have frugality and practicality built into that. And that's what financial independence is. Jenny, we're talking sustainability and practicality. Help us imagine kind of the physical plant of Sunnyside Village. What does it look like? Because a lot of us listening, we might have vaguely heard of co-housing, but I'm not sure we have a real view in our mind of what it looks like. Yeah. In our particular community, we will have individual cottages. So When Lauren says we're going to share resources and tools, she's not talking about co-living. Co-living is generally considered 
a number of unrelated people living in a large house together. Our, and, and that's a, a different format. Our, our co-housing community, because of the zoning that we particularly have, is individual cottages, which will be clustered around kind of a courtyard area. And then we will have a common house, which will uh, belong to all of us. And that's the place that we can gather when we want to and have shared meals together. We will have probably three shared meals together a week. And we hope to have a lot of the food that we produce in our organic garden at the, at the dinners that we share together. So a lot of co-housing communities are more of an apartment style condo. So you can see that. And some of them like ours are individual cottages. I want to talk in a moment about the garden because it seems so central to the community. But before I do, Lauren, Jenny was just talking about the difference between co-living and co-housing. Does ownership play a role? I mean, when you were looking at this, why wouldn't you do, for instance, co-living? Was there still a part of you that said, well, I would like to own some property, something that might still have some value? Yeah, I mean, I think whether you are living you know, in a big structure. So I saw a lot of communities built around, yeah, condo living. So you, you you sort of build this huge structure and you each have your own apartment or something like that. And it's very similar to where I'm living now, you know, living in a big city like Chicago, we all kind of live in sort of these concrete boxes. And it was very similar. And I wanted to break out of where how I'm living um, but also having some similarity too, meaning that I uh, I still own my own space, that the space is mine. But then when I wanted to, the adjacent space, I could walk out my door and see a friendly face, see my friend, see my neighbors, have activities, learn or play or read. All of these things are just outside my door, but I do have still have this private space that's really integral, I think, to, to our health as well. So I think that was attractive. It's a combination of the best of both worlds, where you have privacy, but also community at the same time. So Jenny, each person eventually will own their own cottage, but at the center of the community is this community garden. Why was that such an important part of the plan for you? Well, for both my husband and I, just connecting with the earth, get, literally getting my hands in the dirt and, and pulling weeds and growing food that I can eat, it's something that, that I've really always wanted. I can remember as a teenager, our family had a garden, and I can remember going out into the garden thinking, what can I what can I cook for my family that is just out of the garden? So it it really was from a very uh, long ways back that it, that it was interesting to me, and I've learned more every year. It's for me as part of my spirituality as well as my connection with the earth. Growing, I will pick raspberries this afternoon and take them to my family. And so we've got a lot of raspberries. We had strawberries earlier in the year and. We'll have a lot of tomatoes and we have a big freezer that we can preserve those things to have them all winter and share them with people. Sharing the food with people that I produce is it's important to me. It's it's really part of who I am. Lorna, you know, I can't help but think as we talk about this, it seems like co-housing fills a lot of needs, right? There are some religious aspects, I think, to it. There's certainly some sustainability aspects, even governance. It hits me that most people kind of use their house as a place to live, and then they look for other communities around them, sometimes even separately, that aren't really related to where they live. Why connect the two? Why is housing in the same place that you build community so important? Well, I think you're more likely to do something if it's close to you. I feel like one of the reasons why we're, at least I feel very insular at times, living in a huge bustling metropolis, even though, you know, there's 9 million people around me, literally 9 million people, yet somehow, sometimes I still feel lonely. Somehow I still 
scroll through my phone looking for something to do. Somehow I'm wondering, oh, where are all my friends this weekend? It's not built in. You really have to make a huge effort most of the time to find activities because things aren't aren't immediately around you. So I think co-housing, that's that's the concept that things around you, it's part of your life. The community is part of your life. And since we're talking about financial independence, I think it can be a more inexpensive way to live because as Lauren's talking about your entertainment, instead of, you know, throwing all the kids in the big SUV and driving off to wherever and paying however much to park and, you know, pay your admission fee and snacks and all that stuff. Instead of that, you you grab your your box of Tupperware homemade cookies and you walk down to the, the common house. And that's where you have your entertainment and your maybe your book group and uh, maybe a talent show. And it, of course, that doesn't have to be the only entertainment you have, but I think it can be a really much lower cost way to live. And I also think that there's the values of non-materialism and non, not striving to look better than your neighbor. So it's not keeping up with the Joneses. We're all pretty equal. We don't focus on how much people make. We just focus on having a quality of life. And it doesn't really matter how much each individual person makes. So it can be a lower cost way to live as well as a, a more satisfying and meaningful way to live. Jenny, let's talk more about values. I noticed when describing community, you use the terms solidarity, sustainability, and democracy. Obviously, you were very thoughtful about how you wanted to define this community. Why were those terms important? Well, I'll tell you, those terms actually were brought by one of our members who is a democratic socialist. And those were his words. They're a young couple. Actually, they're a little side note. One of the exciting things about them is that they have miniature goats. So they're going to be bringing their miniature goats to our community, which we're all excited about. We're trying to attract young people, too. This is something that very often is attracting older people who are retired or semi-retired. And we 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 really want to have a multi-generational community. So by having this young couple bring those words into our website, it felt really it felt current and it felt like a way to really attract progressive young people who want to raise families and, and raise their children in a really progressive way with adults who will be supportive and respectful, whatever their lifestyle. Yet, Lauren, it's an important question, right? Because these are very progressive terms, and yet the financial independence community is not necessarily always very progressive, right? We have some definite conservative aspects to our community. Do you think the progressiveness sometimes turns people off? I actually, I feel like the opposite. I feel like financial independence people tend to be the trailblazers, You know, we tend to say to the mainstream media and the mainstream education or or financial education, education, hey, your ways don't work for us. We don't want to work until we're 65 years old. We don't want a nine to five for 45 years and retire for 10 years and then go into ill health. Uh, We want a different life for ourselves and we're going to build it. And we have this idea and we're, we're going to implement it. So I feel like this is very similar. We're not going going to be the typical um, people who, who are, you know, buy a home and pay a mortgage on it for thirty years and live in into it, live in it for, until you're like sixties or seventy, and then move into a nursing home. We're not. We're, we're trying to buck that trend. So I think financial independence people know how to buck trends because that's what we've been doing for a long time. And to build on what Jenny has been talking about sharing, you know, it's really interesting. We think about sharing as sharing like physical things, like physical possessions, like, oh, we can go down the street and ask Dean if he has a hammer I can borrow because I need to put this picture up or something like that. I'll probably do that. But we actually talk a lot more about sharing things like knowledge, like skill, like wisdom, like all of these things are intangible and not just about the physicality of things. 
We are talking with Jenny Lindbergh, creator of the Sunnyside Village co-housing community, and Lauren Tang, host of the In Love and Money podcast. And today we're discussing co-housing. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. On this episode, we'd like to give a shout out to Unify Money. The big banks spend billions of dollars on advertising each year and create special acquisition incentives and promotions to attract new customers. And you know why? Because they have to. Because they offer very poor value for customers' deposits. The separate accounts and functions make it purposefully complex to manage money. All these expenses, advertising, branch costs, etc., have to be paid for. Unfortunately, it's the customers that foot the bill through low interest rates and high fees. A typical bank retains over 90% of what they make from people's money. Unify Money aims to give 90% of the money back to users. It has been created to provide people with a better way to manage their money. Unify Money offers a single solution that includes everything you need for everyday money management, including saving, spending, and investing. Unify Money has optimized your personal financial management to make it effortless, maximizing passive income via interest and cash back and creating long-term financial assets through investment automatically and by default. Unify Money makes your money work for you, not the bank. If you want to learn more, check it out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash unify. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash U-N-I-F-I and check them out. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Jenny Lindbergh of the Sunnyside Village Community Co-Housing and Lauren Tang, financial independence enthusiast. And we are talking about co-housing today. Jenny, let's talk about the physical location of the co-housing community. In my mind, I have to admit, I naturally think of a rural setting when I'm considering something like co-housing, which is not necessarily correct. Tell me the importance of where you decided to have this community. We looked at uh, property in a number of different areas, and it's a real balance between getting out. Probably everybody is aware that Seattle housing prices have just skyrocketed, and it's very difficult for people to afford to be able to live in the Seattle area. And so, of course, the farther out you go, um, the more rural it is and the cheaper it is. So it was a real balance between how far out can we go and still have young people who can commute into the city. So where we're at is about 25 miles north of Seattle, which has heavy traffic. So it's not an easy commute, but it's certainly within commuting distance and people do commute farther. The area that we found, we found this interesting, unique piece of 4.75 acres. It is surrounded pretty much by housing development, but it's right now pretty, has a rural feeling. There's lots of trees and we have what I consider the best feature is right next door to us is 10 acres of woods that's owned by the city of Marysville Parks Department. And they have no no plans to do anything with it. It's in fact a wetlands because it has a stream running through it. So it's not much good for them. But for us, it gives us this beautiful green belt right next door that we can walk in the woods and get some connection with nature 
and at the same time be like 12 minutes from the downtown Everett Transit Center, which has really good connection, Amtrak, all of the major bus systems, as well as the the community and and, um, city buses are from Everett and you can get to anywhere. You can actually have a wonderful Amtrak ride from Everett or Seattle up to Vancouver, BC, or down to Portland. And it's a, a lovely one day ride. And it's so it's pretty convenient. Lauren, you're a young woman living in the city used to the hustle and bustle. How do you think our generation will feel about a little more of a rural setting? Do you think it'll hold people back? You know, I think there was a bit of a shift. I felt that shift before the pandemic. People wanted like a slower pace of life, or at least wanted to have the option for part of their life, part of their non-working life to be slower, to be closer to the earth, to be closer to nature. And I think the pandemic just accelerated that and just accentuated that. So, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, hey, listen, I'm never going to go back to a completely in-office work environment anymore. I'm going to be based at home a lot of the times. Most of my friends who have been working from home intend to never go back to the office, or at least definitely not 100% office time anymore. And so I think for this generation, we're looking away from, again, that office setting where the, with the fluorescent light shining down on you for 40 years uh, until you're 65 and you get the gold pin and you get sent off into the sunset and you don't know what to do with your life. I think that's not attractive for us. It's not, it has not been attractive for a long time. And we've been looking for a way out of this maze and where the pandemic has just shown us that, hey, there's another option. You, you can do all of these conference calls and you can do all the, of this work and you can be just a, as effective and efficient without having to commute into your job every single day for 40 years. And I think that's really significant. It's influenced the way we're developing our community. The younger people in our community wanted a place in the common house to be able to work from home. And I have to admit, my first reaction was, wait a minute, this is the common house. It's for all of us. Why should we provide a space for you to be able to work from home, work from your own home? And as we continued to talk and I understood what they what they really were talking about and what they meant, we, we designed a room that we call the quiet room that will be pretty versatile. During the daytime, Monday through Friday, it'll be a workspace and it'll have really good um, internet connection and printers or whatever, you know, physical equipment is needed there and big cupboards against the wall so that in the evenings and weekends, we can open the cupboards and it's the craft room and it's the maybe the sewing machines and the all the different crafts that people want to be able to do that take up too much space in your home. But by working together and sharing that space, it can be a, it, it will be a very multi-use space and comfortable for people to do Zoom meetings or do partial commutes. Because I hear young people say that too a lot, Lauren, that I'm not going back to the office full time. That that didn't work for me. It's too there's too many advantages to working from home now. So it'll be interesting to see how the pandemic, maybe we can bring the both the best out of both of the worlds. Jenny, help me envision envision here because I'm trying to figure out who are going to be the people who live in a co-housing environment. And certainly I can see retired people. As the young people go, do you see the doctors and lawyers and the professionals who are commuting on a regular basis being a big part of the community? Or do you see that it'll more be enticing to digital entrepreneurs, people who maybe work less and live more off the land or find ways to spend less time in the traditional office setting? Actually, our members are most of those groups. We have actually significantly, what we have a lot of is people who don't have grandchildren and people like me who really want to live around children, but don't have grandchildren. So we have the people who are involved in the digital digital world and have kids and do some homeschooling, work from home. We have we have retired people who are um, wanting to just spend more time in the garden and 
be able to be around the kids that are in the community, as well as we've actually got a number of health professionals, uh, which I find fascinating, uh, naturopath, some yoga instructors, of course, Lauren being an internal medicine doctor, uh, midwife. So a, a wide variety of different kinds of people. Now, let me tell you a little a little story. What I understand, I haven't lived in co-housing, so let me be fully clear, but I understand that the children in the community always know where they can go to get cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. Yeah, it, it's important to point out that you are in the planning stage right now. So you have members, people have committed, but boots are not on the ground at this moment. That's correct. We're in the design process. It's very exciting. It's a ton of work. It's very exciting to be able to envision the community that we want to be able to live in. And our architect, Grace Kim, who lives in co-housing, Capitol Hill co-housing in Seattle, does a wonderful job of helping us design our community and be able to talk through what it is that we want to do. And her team will design the community in a way for us to be able to do the things that we want to do. Now, they tell me, I don't know if this is true, but they tell me that most architects, once they work with one co-housing community, aren't too excited about working with another one because we talk about a lot of things. There's a lot of decisions. There's a lot of meetings and a lot of prioritizing. And that takes a lot more time. So we really appreciate that. Grace Kim and her team are, are guiding us through that. And they're helping us create a community that is designed in a way for connection. For example, we have shared parking. So you will drive into the community, you'll park your car, and you will walk through the community on paved paths, the pedestrian streets. So you'll be able to take your grocery cart or your bicycle, your stroller, your wheelchair, and you'll be able to get around the whole community. And by designing it that way, we see each other. We see have connection. The kind of place that Lauren lives is designed, and traditional suburban neighborhoods, they're designed for privacy, which a lot of people like. And I, that's fine if that's, if that's what you want. But the design of co-housing is designed for you to see people and connect with people and have a reason to go to the common house and sit and have a cup of coffee with somebody. Lauren, she mentioned where you live currently. You live in the city, literally a short walk to work. Tell me what working for you will look like once you're living in a co-housing community. Will you still be doctoring? And if so, in what manner? Oh, that's the $6 million question, at least for me personally. I don't know. I feel like I'm in that, that transi transition period. And this transition period, I think for people in the fire community, for, for early retirees or people who are looking to retire early, I, I've seen various examples. Some of us have been able to just flip that switch like it's a light switch or something and say, I'm done. I'm 35 years old and I'm going to retire early because I know my numbers and uh, I'm ready and financially uh, I'm all set. And they never went back to work again. And then I've had seen people like myself who've reduced our, my hours, switch my, my work focus a little bit, get better quality of life and, and transition slowly over a number of years to eventually full retirement. So I, I don't know. I think that eventually I will be doing a significant amount of work from home. I do that already because a lot of the things that I do is around medical education and medical administration, which now because of the pandemic, it's more acceptable to have these meetings online. And so my students don't blink an eye anymore when they're seeing me more on screen than in person. And that's a change. And, and can I teach? as effectively? Yes. In some cases, I can teach as effectively online, but maybe not all. So I'll have to find that balance. And I think that's exciting too. Co-housing and, and the community, community that we're building is allowing me to open like several more doors in my brain about what's possible for me. What is this mix of work and life that I can create, you know, bit at a time to be a perfect set for me. 
Yeah. And I'm picturing kind of, you know, this little house on the prairie where you had the community doctor. Have you ever considered the fact that you could be the co-housing community doctor? I think that might be the plan. I'm kidding, Jenny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, actually, there's one community in Alaska. I don't know if you've heard about them, but basically the entire population fit into one condo building and they have everything. They have the doctor, they have the orthopedist, they have the dentist, they have the teachers. Everybody is in this one building and everyone lives there and work there. I think it's fascinating. The people there say that they love their their community. And yeah, there's a doctor that has 600 patients and that's all he has. That sounds like a dream. Because for me, the best thing to to see is a returning patient or somebody that I actually know. You know, traditional doctors spent years, decades knowing their patients, you know, and that traditional model, I feel like is kind of going out of practice in a way. It's hard to find a doctor that says, I've been practicing for 40 years and I've seen Mr. Smith for 30 of those years and I know all of his life stages. I mean, that's the dream. And so I don't think that that's the case that I'm going to be the doctor for the community because, again, our health system isn't built that way. There isn't like one doctor and and they see everybody, but I can be a resource. That is a skill set that I have that I can contribute, just like my friend down the street might know how to make soap. And I would love to learn how to make soap. And she's going to teach me that. So maybe I can teach somebody first aid, or I can, you know, they can come to me if they have an ailment and and get some preliminary thoughts about what's going on. Jenny, when I listened to Lauren describe that condo complex in Alaska with the doctor and the dentist and the orthopedist, the first thing that comes to my mind is we, especially in the United States, have huge amounts of rules and regulations Tell me about the rules and regulations that govern co-housing. I imagine there's a little dance you have to do as you're setting up these communities to make sure you're following state rules. Certainly, we have to, we follow state rules, the zoning requirements, city regulations, and, and all of those. We also develop our own governance system. Because co-housing doesn't, this this living cooperatively together doesn't just happen naturally. We actually are are learning and developing as we go along. We use a governance model called sociocracy, which is a, a way of being a very egalitarian, transparent, and yet at the same time, a pretty effective way of getting things done. We don't want to sit around all day long, hours and hours and hours, you know, in meetings trying to force each other to agree. So instead, sociocracy is a a different way of having small groups that make decisions and bring those decisions to the big group. So we learn about communication skills and we practice communication skills and we practice disagreeing with each other. Actually, in our particular community, probably Lauren and I are really good examples of wanting to get along with everybody and not wanting to speak up. So people like Lauren and I have to learn how to say, wait a minute, you know, it's scary for me to say it, but I disagree with that. And we learn how to respect each other and our disagreements and talk through them. And as a result, the community comes to a better idea with everybody giving input instead of one, there's no one person who says, this is how we're going to do it. This is the, the law of the land. Instead of that, we work together to come to a decision that works for everybody. Let's move from governance to economics. I'm going to come back to you, Jenny, in a moment. But first, Lauren, Tell me about what it felt like to say, okay, I'm interested in this coast housing community. And then, of course, at some point, the conversation said, okay, what is it going to cost me? How did the economics of the situation appear to you? Did it feel onerous when you first got involved? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the numbers are pretty straightforward. The community has a set of plans for you know what it's going to cost for one a one bedroom cottage versus a two bedroom or a three bedroom so that's in a way kind of traditionally what you would 
see if you were to kind of think about buying a home anywhere in the world, you kind of look at the range of prices. Now, because we have we haven't actually priced out every single nail and every single piece of wood, we can't tell you to the dollar what it's going to cost, but we can give you an idea of approximately what your budget should be for a one or two or three bedroom cottage. So that felt very traditional and, and not onerous at all. But if you are going to come to co-housing, at least for me personally, what really kind of helped make the decision is the people. You're going to have to like the people that you decide to buy into this community with. You have to love them, actually. You have to feel like you belong. You have to feel like they're your friends, neighbors, people that you could spend the next however many years you decide to live there, you know, living happily along with. So that's going to be the decision maker. And when you are considering joining a community like ours, the first aspect is we're not going to ask you to sign anything and we're not going to ask you to make any decisions. We just ask you to come and watch us or participate in one of our meetings and just see how we operate and see how we talk to each other, how we communicate, how we make decisions. And together we can decide, are you a good fit? Or are you not a good fit for us? And it's a mutual decision here. So it's not like, in that way, it's not kind of like building a house. You are actually going to have to like know and like your neighbors before you you go in and build this house or buy this house. And that's different because most people don't go and meet their neighbors when they're touring a house and, and deciding to buy it. So that's very different. Jenny, are you willing to speak about some of the specifics? Like economically, what does it look like? How much money do you have to start with putting down? How much do you know about the final cost for the different levels of cottage? How does the process work? The truth is we don't know. We're in the middle of the design process. Like Lauren said, we are just, we, we're on the verge of knowing. We should know pretty quickly, but we're just trying to find a builder and we're working, we're, we're going to be working with a modular construction company that is actually in, in Marysville, about five miles away, and that's going to help reduce costs. Now, the cost of our homes will probably be very similar to the cost of other brand new homes in our area because the construction company, the builder, everybody has to, has to make their... Um, their ends meet just like anybody else. So they're not giving us a deal. We have no subsidies, unfortunately. I understand that many European countries, the governments will actually subsidize co-housing because they see it as such a benefit and a bonus for, for their citizens. But this country at this point, no subsidies yet. So our homes will cost pretty much what a new house will cost we are trying to be very efficient and effective with materials. We'd like to build as green as we can, but that, of course, as everybody know, everybody knows, the, the more you do that, the higher the cost goes. So it's a balance between being as environmentally responsible as we can and still keeping costs low. So the modular construction, this company will be able to build they tell me five cottages at a time and we'll be able to work throughout the winter. And they're very efficient. I was got to tour the factory and was very impressed with their efficiency. So you can reduce the waste. I think construction companies traditionally have a lot of waste with the supplies that they have. But this company will know that their building will, will have about 30 cottages. They'll know that ahead of time. They'll be able to order just exactly what they need. So the, the members provide the money. We have no outside money. So the members, Lauren and I, contribute money to our LLC. That's the money that We'll build the roads and the utilities and put all of that stuff in. So we essentially, not literally, but essentially we're contributing the 20% down in cash to the LLC. And that's what builds the community. Is that risky? Yep. Is it scary? Yep. Lauren and I have both, I think, thoroughly looked at the risks and decided that it is 
it's a pretty safe risk. Yes, it's a risk. I'm not looking at a home that's already built and saying, here, I'm going to give you this money, give me the key. Instead, we're, we're looking at a vision and a dream. It's a financial risk based upon, you know, any risk really, and, and money in particular, I feel like you have to trust the people that you are working with, collaborating with. And I think in in this, you know, if you were to go out and buy a house, you kind of trust your realtor, right? You trust kind of the housing market that is a good housing market to buy in. You trust that uh, the house is in good shape and that you're, you're not making a bad investment. This is kind of the same thing. And in because we don't have a physical structure yet, we've got the land, we've got the architect, we have the group, we have you know money in the bank that we're using to get the project on the ground. We have some stakes in the ground, you know, look spacing out where everything's going to go and and what the rooms are going to look like. That's what we have, and we're building every day, pieces piece by piece, the cottages, the community, and all of that. So if you are coming in, you do need some trust, and which is why we ask that you spend a lot of time with us, explore our community. It will take weeks, months before you could even make a decision. We actually don't want people uh, to come in and make a decision right away. We actually don't want like a huge number of members. We're pretty deliberate in terms of selecting people that are appropriate for our community. So we have a good thing going. We have a great community and a great piece of land and a great location. We want great neighbors. We want great friends. And we want it to be for you to be as good of a fit for our community as for our community to be as good of a fit for you. So yes, it's money, it's finances, it's buying a house, and there will be trust. But we don't want you to make that decision until you have full trust in us and what we're building. We're talking to Jenny Lindbergh, co-founder of the Sunnyside Village co-housing community, as well as Lauren Tang, financial independence enthusiast, as well as a Sunnyside member. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. If you've been listening to this show and trying to figure out how do I increase my top line, one way is through real estate. And when I want to learn more about real estate, one of my favorite places to go is the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. This podcast is all about how to use real estate as an asset class to get ahead towards financial independence. There are two types of episodes, one in which the coach himself gives you all the tips and tricks on how to make money in real estate. The other is where he has guests, proof of concept, real life examples of people out there like you and I making real estate work towards their financial independence plan. It is a wonderful podcast. I hope you check it out. Go to coachcarson.com. Again, that's coachcarson.com. Take a listen. You won't regret it. We're back with Jenny Lindbergh, co-founder of the Sunnyside Village Community Co-Housing, as well as Lauren Tang, fire enthusiast. Lauren, let's talk about some of the downsides. I hate to use the C word, but has anyone asked you if you're joining a cult? (laughs) Does it sound like a cult? I guess it might. I mean, I feel like if I hadn't heard about this in the FI community five years ago, maybe it would have taken me a little bit longer to trust the concept. But co-housing has been, like Jenny said, around for decades. There's a lot of data about how these community works and how they can improve the mental and physical health of the people who live there. So I don't think it's a trust. Nobody's, sorry, it's, I don't think it's a cult. No one's like asking to brand you or anything. I think, you know, or like making you drink things that look suspicious or anything like that. I think, you know, it's really interesting because I was thinking like, which group would want to hear about co-housing? And the first group would be the financial independence group. Because I think, like you said, we've been kicking the ball around, thinking about how we would want to create a community for ourselves. 
And so I, I think we know that it's not a cult, at least in our community. One of the main reasons that it's not a cult is that there isn't a central person who's the figure that that is, you know, dictating what everybody thinks and feels. It's definitely a group issue. There's a lot of transparency and egalitarian decisions. When I, I'm working with people who are interested in maybe becoming members, and often they're either their adult children or their parents will be interested. And I always say, please invite them, call, have them call me. I want your family to feel comfortable that they know what you're getting into. Because, you know, you can imagine we've had a couple of adult children who are suspicious that mom's being maybe taken advantage of or somebody's trying to get her money. And we don't want to do that at all. So by being totally transparent and explaining to everybody what it is that we're doing, that's really helpful. Yeah, I imagine also, Jenny, that once the shovels start hitting the ground and the cottages go up, that will also be reassuring. What do you think the time course of getting this village built is? When do you think the first cottages will go up? And when do you think you'll be done? Well, we think that we could probably break ground in 2022. And because we're using modular construction, it should take about eight months rather than 12 months. So that should shorten the time. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that we will actually be able to be moving in by the end of 2022. And Lauren, if someone is looking from the outside and thinking about co-housing, of course, you can go to the Sunnyside Village website. But where else did you go to find information about co-housing when you were first looking into it? Are there some good sites or some good places to research? Yes, there are. I mean, you can probably just put co-housing USA in the Google search box and you'll get, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits and you can start there. But there's cohousing.org, which is kind of like the main site where most co-housing communities register with. And you can get a lot of information from there. There's a section that I really like, which is called classified or looking for members or something like that. And basically you can it's like a shopping list where you can go through and say, okay, I want to live in California. Are there any co-housing places in California that has spots for members or properties that I can buy? So you can start from there. So, you know, think about if you are considering co-housing and maybe you want to move across country, or maybe you just want to move down the street and you just want to move into a co-housing community, start with cohousing.org and uh, search by geography. And you can go from there to the actual website. So let's say you find something in California that you, that you like. You can go to the actual website. You can look around. You can contact people. You know, I just want to reiterate that the people in co-housing are the nicest group of people I've ever met in my life. And it is really funny because you could contact somebody, you know, just as an interest. And even though you no longer think that their community is appropriate for you, they continue to be your friend. They continue to be a resource. They continue to email you and check in on you and all of these things, which is really interesting because there is no agenda here. The agenda is how can I help you? The agenda is how can you and I form a relationship that's cooperative and ben beneficial for both of us? start with cohousing.org. And if you want to reach out to us, like even if you don't think that cohousing in Seattle, in the Pacific Northwest is right for you and you're considering something else, but you just want to talk to somebody, you feel free to reach out to me or to Sunnyside. We're happy, or at least I'm happy to talk. Jenny, is cohousing for everybody? I mean, what types of personality traits generally fit well into these type of communities? Um, co-housing is not for everybody. No, many, many of my family members think I'm crazy. They're even more introverted than I am. And my sister said, do you mean that I would have to talk to people? <laughs> yes, people who live in co-housing do like to talk to people. But it's also interesting that a high percentage of introverts actually find co-housing communities to be more comfortable because it's hard. I'm an introvert and it's hard for us to reach out and make new friends. So co-housing is kind of a built-in 
community of friendships. So you would think that co-housing would be full of extroverts, but it's actually a higher percentage than the usual population of introverts. Certainly extroverts love the availability of people around and the the ability to go to the common house and just sit and chat with people informally. Families love co-housing because, as you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And I think that raising a child in a co-housing community can be just a really wonderful experience for the child. They get to uh, be around other adults besides their parents, be uh, learning from and influenced by. And it's a good safety backup, actually, for children. Certainly, you wouldn't want to depend on the community for regular um, daycare, unless there's some financial arrangements, of course. But if if a child came home and there was an emergency and there wasn't a parent home, they're going to know their neighbors. They're going to know, mom and dad are going to know that it's safe for the kids to be able to find some somebody else in the community that's helpful. It's a really good way for aging in place. That's what my husband and I are, are really looking at is a community that we can live in, that neighbors will know who we are and care about whether or not we're up and around. And if they haven't seen us, they'll check on us. Our homes will be designed in with universal design. So not fully wheelchair accessible, but able to the specific things like the hallway size um, will will be wide enough to accommodate a wheelchair. So you wouldn't have to uh, redesign your whole entire house if you ended up in a wheelchair. So universal design and an eye for aging in place. So a full spectrum of families, single people who want their own privacy in their own space, but yet want to know the people around them and know the people around them care about them and know what's going on with them. Well, it's been a joy talking about co-housing, Jenny and Lauren. I'm thankful, especially in this time of the pandemic, we really get to realize the importance of our social, emotional, emotional, and even financial well-being. And I think co-house is one of those answers to what we've been missing in modern day society. Jenny, if people want to learn more about the Sunnyside Village co-housing community, where can they go on the internet to learn about it? Our website is sunnysidevillagecohousing.com. And every uh, week, On Thursdays at 5.30 Pacific time, we do an introductory, just one hour Zoom meeting to tell the, just an overview of who we are and what we do and what the next steps would be. And you can get that link on the website. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And by having myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Jenny Lindbergh and Lauren Tang. That's a wrap. Cool. Was there anything you guys feel like we didn't get a chance to talk about that you thought was important? No, not at all. I think you did a great job. I thought we covered everything really well. And Lauren, you did wonderfully. (laughs) Oh, you did too. Um, I mean, yes, I thought we covered everything. Wow. You, uh, you do, you both did a great job, but I love the way that, uh, you know, the questions were very intentional Mm -hmm. and Mm kind of lead through like all of the, all of the things that people who are listening to it for the first time would be like wondering, like, Mm -hmm. how much does this cost? And what is this? Is this really a cult? So it's really great. Right. Yeah, it, it's important. I mean, Lauren, you know this too from doing your own podcast is my job is to to convey to you all the questions that I imagine all the audience yeah. members are thinking as they're listening mm-hmm. at the moment, but also to create an arc of conversation. And I think co-housing is something we've all kind of vaguely heard about. And I think a lot of us kind of accept it. Oh, yeah, that's kind of a cool idea, but don't really know the ideas, nor do we see it in true action. So that's kind of why I thought when Lauren talked to me about this, I was like, yes, I think it's great to do an episode on that because I feel like we need to make concrete this vague ephemeral idea that we all kind of know, oh yeah, that sounds good. And it certainly Mm -hmm. goes along with our community. A lot of people in personal finance and especially in financial independence 
really kind of are into that sustainability. I can't tell you how many times I see in these forums where people are like, wouldn't it be cool if we could live in a community and we wouldn't all have to have lawnmowers because we'd have community lawnmower right. and right. we wouldn't have to go <clears throat> to the cobbler to fix our shoes because Joe over there fixes his shoes, but I'm a cook so I could make dinner for them. And, you know, you get into these conversations and yeah. they all tend to be very pie in the sky because people don't really take action. So I thought it would be really good to highlight how you've taken action and what that really looks like. I appreciate it. I think this has been really good and really helpful and really useful. So yeah, I appreciate the ability to talk about it. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.